Good morning. We are back. Bostopia News with Evan George. This being released on December 4th, 2023. And we are here to take a quick look. I don't anticipate this being too long of an episode. At just how was it that Rutsi Lujen was able to wrap up becoming the next Boston City Council president in 45 hours from when polls closed. And that's not a typo. That's not a mistake. I didn't mean to say 48 days. From November 7th at 8 p.m., we got the Danny McDonald article from the Boston Globe, November 9th, just under 5 p.m. So even closer, or even under 45 hours, with Rootsy confirming via Twitter about 30 minutes after that article was published, writing, I am humbled that my colleagues believe in me to lead the Boston City Council in the next term. I look forward to working in deep partnership to continue to build a Boston where every voice is heard and every neighborhood flourishes. How did that happen in 45 hours? And we will contrast that with the battle that took place last cycle, who would be the council president. And some of this will be speculation. Some of this will be a little inside knowledge, as it always is. Because the writing was on the wall for this months and months ago. And yes, that does mean we will also have to go back and revisit what happened with redistricting. Because I really can't overemphasize enough how fundamental that was in Rootsy securing her spot on what is a predominantly white Boston City Council. But before we get into that story, a quick pitch. Thank you to everyone who listened to the Year 2 in Review with Michelle Wu episode. Actually, that had a nice rhythm to it. I should have went with that for the title. And if you made it to the end of that episode, you got to hear about the Patreon announcement. And I really just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who has already subscribed without using really any of the tools and methods we're taught as organizers, without any direct contact with people, without any outreach for fundraising, without me getting some people lined up ahead of time so it looked like there was some tide of momentum. Me really just announcing it at the end of an hour-long podcast episode, and I also mentioned it on my TikTok, that got a much larger response, to be honest, than I was anticipating. So thank you all. And if you would like to contribute, if you would like to support the work I do, if you would like to help me grow my platform and really just help support independent news, journalism, whatever you want to call it here in Boston, best way of doing that, patreon.com slash News, And you can really just kind of throw me a cup of coffee a month as your way of saying thanks or a beer, should you be so inclined, or even lunch. And for the wealthy amongst you, the very wealthy amongst you, this is here for you too. But do not worry. If you don't have the ability to give, you can always help promote the show by sharing it and my content, especially the content that is informative or educational in nature, will remain free for everyone. But okay, there's the pitch. Let's get back to it. So how exactly did Rootsy wrap this up in 45 hours? Now, obviously, Danny McDonald had to have gotten notice of this story. You know, he's a pro. Maybe it took him two hours to write this up, get it quickly approved and published. Probably was more than that. But let's just go with two hours. You know, that gets us down to about 43 hours before this announcement. Now, 
Danny and all of the other journals in Boston received, I believe, a press release from Rootsy's office, which means that Rootsy and her team had to have this crafted and, you know, probably spent a few hours on that and then sent that out to people. So maybe now we're looking at an 11 a.m., noon, just a day and a half after polls closed, closer to maybe now 36, 38 hours in, which means the day before from the polls closing on November 7th at 8 p.m. until, you know, maybe we'll call it around 11 o'clock noon, then Rootsy's team sends it to the press on the 9th. November 8th, probably a lot of phone calls. And I'm, of course, under no illusion that this all began once the polls closed. I'm sure these conversations were in the works for months and months. In fact, I know they are, or I know they were, because during that time, Brian Worrell was also lobbying for his position. And what really strikes me, you know, when you consider who are the two counselors that we know of that were lobbying, and at least openly lobbying enough that it came to me that this was happening, were two who are just entering their second year on the council. And this really is a young, young council. If we think of who has the longest tenure, with Michael Flaherty leaving, Frank Baker leaving, Ricardo getting knocked out, really? We have Ed Flynn, who joined the council in 2017, and then Liz Brearden and Julia Mejia in 2019. And with Ed Flynn just presiding over what the entire narrative has been about, like, you know, the most dysfunctional Boston City Council we've ever seen, all that BS, and maybe we'll circle back and discuss that a little, because I do think that helped lay the groundwork for what coalitions could be built. He probably didn't want to do it again, and I don't know if he would have been able to beat Rootsy, because really, there wasn't too much of a downside with Rootsy. And I think the biggest difference for why she was selected and maybe Liz Brearden didn't even consider it, is one, of course, Rootsy was the top vote-getter, at-large seats. I don't have the breakdown in front of me of how often is it that an at-large counselor is in this role. It's probably a back-and-forth when I think back on recent memory. I mean, Kim Janey was district-level. Ed Flynn was district-level. We had, however, you know, Michelle Wu was council president. And actually, forget using my memory. Here's a fun exercise. Most recent, Ed Flynn, district level. Then it was Kim Janey, district level. Then it was Andrea Campbell, district level. Then in 2016, 2017, we had Michelle Wu. 2014 to 2015, we had another district level with Bill Linehan. Then we have Stephen Murphy. So we have now our only second at large. Marafini, district. Michael Flaherty who was the president 2022 to 2026 at large, and then 2021, Charles Yancey, which means that really in the 21st century, we have only had three at-large city councilors representing or being the council president, which is actually pretty shocking. I thought it would have been a lot more just given the nature of an at-large. And so when we are now trying to think between, well, why wasn't it one of the other two, whether that was Julia Mejia or Liz Brearden, well, in Julia's case, she really lost her coalition. With Kendra being gone, with Ricardo being gone, with the council really reforming around a much more moderate conservative 
side than the progressives in those nine to four votes that we were seeing much earlier in the term. There was really a realignment. And between Julia, who probably could have got the support of Tanya, it's really difficult to see who would have coalesced. And as I mentioned after the election, and I am still definitely going to do that episode, we look back on the numbers just to see what really happened. And if we can really get any sense of changes within the city, I think they're going to be minimal. But this will be a much more conservative Boston City Council than what we saw before. And it will really take the shape of what we saw over the last final few months. And now the one big exception, and I think this is why Liz Brearden was kind of instantly removed from any contention, even though, again, I don't have any evidence that she sought the seat. But just thinking through it, you know, who's been there the longest, who had seniority in some circumstances, is simply Liz Brearden is white. And the white city councilors formed a coalition to beat and to pass what was one of the most contentious things that they did this term, the brick funding, where we had all of the white councilors voting for it, voting for a surveillance and oppression network, which focuses on the subjugation of black and brown communities and all of the black and brown city councilors voting against it. And so if... They are going to maintain this narrative of Boston as this rich and diverse place that the Boston City Council not just represents but reflects, then it is absolutely beneficial and in their interest to make sure that there is a candidate of color who is the president. Now, I do, of course, have to just reemphasize and stress, Rootsy was the number one vote getter in this election. And also, she had unanimous praise and support because of what happened with redistricting. So there was definitely a tidal wave of public support for her to get the number one spot, reflected by both the media and the vote count. So I am not in any way saying that the only reason she is there is because of her race. Of course, that's ridiculous. But we really cannot overlook how bad that racial divide in that brick vote was and how much it really reflects the racial tensions that exist not just in the Boston City Council that we've seen not just over the last term, but over the last two terms, but within the city. And what direction are we going? Are we going backwards or forwards? And I would argue we are absolutely going backwards if we're going to begin the measurement from four years ago. But getting a little ahead of myself, let's now look at how did that 45-hour difference contrast to what happened previously? And what really goes in the making of how do you become the next council president? Because that is very, very important to the story. The 2021 election took place on Tuesday, November 2nd, and it was a full nine days later from that November 2nd. Not that we had a council president locked up, though that already would have been you know, over a week difference from what we saw this term to the previous. But instead, it wasn't until November 11th that we got an article, Boston Herald, Sean Philip Cotter writing three Boston City Councilors eyeing council presidency. Those being Ricardo Arroyo, Kenzie Bach, and Ed Flynn. Now, it's not mentioned in this article, but there was actually a fourth Boston City Councilor that I am aware of who was telling people that they were also interested in being the next council president, that being Lydia Edwards. Now, if that confuses anyone, it's because she was currently in a special election for that state Senate seat. However, 
I know that she also communicated that should she lose that election, that she really wanted to be considered. And since there was no Republican challenger in that race, that was really wrapped up with the primary that took place on December 14th, which if you're curious, how would that timeline have worked? Would, if there was some scenario she was knocked out then or looked like she was going to be knocked out then, she still would have been able to be sworn in when the new city council session took into effect. And don't forget that she stayed on the council for a few months and doing both jobs simultaneously. Anyway, let's not let me get sidetracked. While we had the three public or the three that were really going at it, Ricardo, Kenzie, and Flynn, and this was cited in a recent Globe piece also highlighting what this dynamic really looks like when these councilors are having these conversations, and it's similar to people who follow what happens in the state house, is essentially this is all about promises about committee chairs. And how they try to form coalitions is to essentially get people who are so close ideologically that you can kind of count on them. That is much rarer than the second part. And that second part is making promises of what committees do you want to chair? And sometimes, and I believe this was Kenzie Bach's strategy, was trying to lock up the conservatives first and telling the white conservatives that you will have the prime council committee seats that you want. And then once locking that up, turning towards the other, we'll call them liberals, we'll call them progressives, saying, hey, you know, I'm one of you. I'm a good progressive too. Let's have me be president. And when asked, well, who are you going to put for all these important positions? She would communicate something to the effect of, well, you know, I have to give these people representation, but don't worry, you can trust me, I'll be the president, I'll be in control. And the progressives told her, absolutely not. Now, Ricardo Arroyo probably tried to do a little mix of the two, and maybe completely counting that he would have no hope of getting any support from the white conservatives, try to just lock up all of the left-leaning votes first, but unfortunately, there is enough in the middle that simply would not support him. And so Ed Flynn really became the compromise candidate. He's someone who definitely, out of those three, was further to the right, but he is somewhat seen as a little bit of a joke, someone that you can, if you have an intense one-on-one conversation with, pull him towards your side to at least, you know, let something go but ultimately isn't someone who's going to stand in anyone's way. Now, in some cases that came back to bite the left-leaning candidates in the ass when some of the larger issues came into effect, again, around redistricting, specifically who's going to determine what committee got that assignment, and to Ruzi Lujan. And we really got to see the power that the president has with this term and because of how many just charged votes there were. But Ed Flynn was the compromise. But this still took a long, long time. Again, that article outlying this dynamic between the three was already nine days after the election. And in fact, it wasn't until December 1st that Ed Flynn made public that he got enough support. So that is almost a full month later, from November 2nd to December 1st, an entire month. And again, these conversations don't just start then. These are things that really happened during the election season, even the summer before, of people starting to talk about, hey, have you considered running for president or, you know, having a cup of coffee saying, I'm thinking about running for president. What do you think? 
And to that effect, that these are not just conversations that happen after the vote, but are things that are ongoing, there was an article in the Boston Herald written by none other than Joe Battenfeld titled, Rootsy Lujan Emerges as Top Contender for Bickering Boston City Council Presidency. Reading from it, Bickering Boston City Council is already jockeying for the next president's race, with rising star Rootsy Lujan emerging as one of the top favorites to lead the famously feuding council. And in this piece, he highlights another person who's expected to compete, and he writes at-large counselor Julia Mejia. Now, to what extent was she in sincerity doing it? I don't know. Was he just trying to create a divide? He writes in the piece, Bougen is seen as more of a moderate who can possibly corral the out-of-control council, which has been hampered by bitter infighting and division. She was is a lawyer and the first Haitian-American to serve on the council and was a key figure in passing a new redistricting map, which had been bogged down in fierce debate and legal roadblocks. And really, what you get the sense in this article is what Joe is really trying to communicate to his predominantly white male conservative readership is, hey, listen, we might have a woman of color leading the Boston City Council next cycle, and you better pray it's rootsy because we don't want any of the real crazy ones like Julia. We want the ones that'll work with us. And there's absolutely no reason to think that those same dynamics, meaning conversations that are being had from months and months previously, didn't also happen last cycle between Ed Flynn, Kenzie, and Ricardo. And it still took almost a full month after the election to narrow down who is it going to be. Again, contrasting with the 45 hours that this took. Now, part of it, as I mentioned before, is because there really was no legit challenges to her. A lot of the more senior people were wiped out or resigned. Her opponent, Brian Worrell, had, I believe, almost an identical voting record to her. I can't remember any of the big fights where they found themselves on opposite ends. Might be around the Boston School Committee, but that's kind of the only one I can think of. So close enough ideologically... So it's not like he had this big separation. I mean, maybe if he voted with the white city councilors on that brick vote and he kind of, you know, saved them from that public embarrassment, then, then you know, I could see a reality when he may have been able to get their votes locked up. But since he didn't, he was good on that issue. There really wasn't anything that they don't already get from Rootsy five times over. And before now we look at that redistricting and how we're going to discuss that is looking at two different pieces that cover that same thing. One from the much wider spread Boston Globe in terms of how what is really a news publication which absolutely caters towards the upper middle class elements of Boston and of course the wider population of Boston and contrasting that with the coverage of that redistricting vote, how it went down, with the Bay State Banner, whose tagline is reporting on Boston's urban beats since 1965. That one written by the great Yahoo Miller. The Globe article, Emma Platoff. I don't have anything against Emma, but I am going to highlight just the differences to how they cover it. And why, again, besides her getting the most votes, so the most public confidence in terms of the voting population, we see how the media really held up Rootsy. And just before I go into those two different pieces, probably do the Bay State Banners first. Just want to highlight that I know that this episode and probably some things that I've said on Twitter about this have been very critical of Rootsy and have been not necessarily attacking her, but 
really framing her public praise and her ability to secure the presidency really because of her willingness to side with the white city councilors. And I know that is insanely negative. It's a very negative thing to say about a person. And I am not really doing this as a reflection about her as a person and not even in a totality of her as a politician. She has done some incredible votes and she has been very good and effective on some key issues, most notably around that brick funding. That was incredible. Not just her pushback and her vote, but again, how she articulated it and how she was willing to stand against Michael Cox. And just to highlight how much the Wu administration and the police commissioner were either lying or just very, very ignorant about what they were talking about. And so I don't want people to leave this thinking that I hate Rootsy or that I don't really wish good things for her as the president, because I do, because I can't stress enough how disastrous I see this Boston City Council being in terms of their relationship with the mayor and just ramping up everything for that next mayoral cycle. I think they're going to avoid a lot of votes. I think they're going to take a lot of bad votes. And really now the only person who has the power to stand in the way of that, to actually fight for things, to be willing to cause strict political divides, to be able to cause confrontation and friction with the mayor that we just need fundamentally as a city to operate is Rootsy. And so while I still think it's important to kind of go back and look at what was the most disastrous thing she did last cycle, which was that redistricting and how that absolutely, I think, paved the road to her being president, this isn't really just to bash her as a person. It is just fundamental to understand what is happening behind the scenes of the Boston City Council and the much larger political climate, both here in Boston and in Massachusetts. And so with all that, let's now look, Bay State Banner, May 31st, 2023, redrawn council map raises new issues. Now, this piece by, again, Yahoo Miller does the best job highlighting just how bad this map was and how devastating it was to communities of color when you contrast that with the redistricting that occurred 10 years previously and the original map that was thrown out by the West Roxbury judge. And I'll just read select passages for setting the scene for how this all went down. In a process, its Civil Rights Committee chairwoman, Rutsu Lujan, called contentious, the Boston City Council has passed a second redistricting map with a 10-2 vote, sending the map to Mayor Michelle Wu's desk for approval. The latest map of redrawn council districts follows a May 8th federal ruling that the council likely violated the Constitution by giving too much consideration to race in drawing district lines in the map the body passed last October 26th by a 9-4 vote. The four white councillors who voted against that map joined a lawsuit filed against the council and the city. And of course, also needs to be stressed that the Wu administration chose the deliberate legal strategy not to fight, to not put up a fight for this judge who inevitably threw it out. He then outlines what was the key dynamic of the redistricting, which was District 2, Ed Flynn's district, because of the seaport, ballooned in population more than 13,000 voters, and D3, Frank Baker's district, my district, lost people, mostly through process that we like to call gentrification. But the map that originally passed did seek to do something else. I'll read that for you here. In drawing the map approved last fall, councilors sought to unpack the high concentration of voters of color in the Dorchester Mattapan based District 4, represented by Brian Worrell, increasing the percentage of whites there from just under 8% to 12%. By adding three precincts in the predominantly white Neponset and Lower Mill sections of Dorchester. Those, of course, being 
some of the highest voting participation levels that we see in the city that are also where predominantly the white conservatives live. A lot of cops and firefighters in that area. And so once that map was originally thrown out, what you would imagine they would do is say, okay, that whole second part that you did, that whole moving around D3 white voters into D4, the judge said you couldn't do that, so fine, we'll put those back. We'll look back at the numbers between Districts 2 and Districts 3. We'll make sure those balance out. Okay, we tried, and these are my words, we tried to break apart some of the white conservatives area to give D3 just a better chance of representation. We failed to do so. We got caught, you can call it, or you can just say that the game is stacked against us, which is absolutely the much better reading. Maybe the administration threw it under the bus. Who knows? But okay, we'll just make the levels work. Not a big deal. However, we entered this section that Yaru calls the District 5 controversy. While Baker and Flynn expressed support for Lujan's redrawn lines, which left South Boston intact in District 2, five councils complained that the map moved boundaries in the Hyde Park, Mattapan-based District 5, represented by Ricardo Arroyo. Under Lujan's map, District 5 would shed some majority black Mattapan precincts and pick up majority white precincts in the West Roxbury, Rosendale area. Quote, why are we leaning into District 5? Questioned at-large Councilor Julia Mejia. I'm so confused as to what is at play. If you could just clearly, for the record, help me understand why are we messing with District 5? And what Julia is expressing there, which, you know, for one reason or another, a lot of counselors and politicians don't just say openly what they're really saying. They, you know, are hinting at or just trying to get to is if the judge threw out our map because we messed with districts three and four and we all agree we have to make changes to two and three. Why are we now looking at District 5? Why are we carving parts of that up? And he outlines this back and forth. And the real reason why is retaliation. And this was incredibly clear that they were then going after Districts 5, 6, and 7, represented by Ricardo, Kendra, and Tanya, almost as an FU. Oh, you tried to mess with the white conservative districts? Guess what we're going to do now to you? And Brian Worrell also jumped on that bandwagon, mostly because, as outlined before, he was asked to pick up an additional 4% white people in his district, something he did not want to do, was dragged kicking and streaming. But, and probably most importantly for this, Rootsy was willing to be the champion of this effort. She was willing to put her reputation, her legal experience as someone who has done this work specifically around redrawing maps that is part of her legal experience she was willing to stand there literally right beside and in some ways slightly in front of Erin Murphy and there's a great shot and I described it when I went through this when I watched it live and I, I don't know who picks the photos for the Bay State banner but it's brilliant because it's Rootsy really just standing right next to Erin doing the bidding of these white counselors which was to, again, not at all comply with the judge's order. The judge didn't mention anything about going into Districts 5, 6, and 7, but as pure retaliation, as trying to now gain background. And she did that. We now have, and I'll keep reading and it gets to it, a more conservative map drawing than we did 10 years ago. I'll just keep reading from this piece. 
Quote, the border of District 4 and 5 was not identified as an issue area in the ruling from the judge, Laura said during the council hearing May 23rd. We've heard testimony from both sides. So for me, if we're going to make changes at the border when it's not necessary, when we're balanced by population, I want to make sure that the reasoning is being made in alignment with traditional principles of redistricting. Lujan said District 5 was the natural choice to expand District 4, but Councilors Arroyo, Mejia, Kendra, Tanya, and Brieden, I'm abbreviating some of the names, questioned Lujan's motives in making changes to District 5 that they said would dilute voting the power of Black and Latino residents there. Additionally, community members testified against Lujan's changes to District 5. Mass Vote Executive Director Cheryl Clyburn Crawford noted that District 5 was drawn in its re in its current configuration in 2012 to create what's commonly referred to as an opportunity district. He then outlines other changes involving District 7, picking up, you know, certain wards. I think we'll get lost in the numbers if I just keep saying the wards and the precincts and the things, but just now going to another paragraph down, quote, civil rights advocates were sharply critical of the above changes, as well as to changes to District 5, which they said in a statement would dilute voting power of communities of color. While whites constitute 44% of the city's population, they are a majority in five of the nine city council districts. I'm going to repeat that, and I think this is probably the best way to end it. In the map that was being proposed on that day, quote, while whites constitute 44% of the city's population, they are a majority in five out of the nine city council districts, which is an 11-point swing from 44% of the population they effectively get 55% of city council seats. And that is a deliberate choice of where we draw the lines. And that is what was clearly the goal of the map that Lu Zhen put forward. Because also, do not forget, it's not like she's just heading or chairing this meeting. Multiple maps were submitted after that original one was thrown out. And Lu Zhen said, nope. We are not even going to discuss any of the maps that any of my colleagues have submitted. We are not going to discuss, <laughs> this one was rightful, the map that the mayor submitted. We are going to look at my map and any changes are going to be discussed and debated about my map. And that now locks us in place for a decade. And there were some overnight changes that I think Ricardo, he voted yes because he got one precinct back that originally was going to be cut. Tanya, I can't recall if she got a little piece back or maybe she was just satisfied that Ricardo was voting yes or then she voted yes. So I don't know for certain if that, you know, that 44% of the white population gained 55% of city council representation, we'll call it. It is very possible that that changed. But regardless, that changed overnight, I mean. But regardless, that is what was being fought for by Rootsy on behalf of the white city councilors with Braden being the only one who voiced opposition. But as we've seen before, Braden sometimes voices opposition and then votes the other way. Now, I want you to take that, to take what was in reality what happened during that redistricting, and now contrast that with how the much larger media publication, the Boston Globe, saw what went down that day. Redistricting drama threw Boston City Council into chaos. Enter Ruthsi Lujen by Emma Platoff. It begins, when a federal judge last month blocked Boston's new political map, forcing the city council to draw a new one, it was far from clear that the body could even meet the challenge. It had taken the divided group more than a month of bitter debate to agree on a council district boundaries the first time. Now the council, down one member in the middle of its 
busy budget season, had to do it again, fast or risk delaying election day and throwing the entire municipal election process into chaos. Enter Council of Ruzi Lujen. When she took over the process from another council committee in early May, her colleagues were bickering over everything from where precincts were placed on the map to who should be in charge of redrawing the lines. After two weeks, four map proposals, five marathon hearings, and countless personal attacks, Lujen passed a new version of the map 10 to 2. It was a remarkable show of consensus on a body with a reputation of infighting and disorganization and a feat many feared would come too late if happened at all. You get the idea, but I'm just going to read a couple more choice lines. The first-term counselor has emerged from the fray looking like a thoughtful, cool head on a council of brash talkers and hot tempers. Even the federal judge who blocked the city's earlier map praised the process Lujan ran, saying this spring's effort better adhered to legal principles than last fall's. Right? You can just see this entire premise and framing. They have been bashing the council this entire session, really ramped up in that June, July, and August, right before the prelims. And now highlighting Lujan is, you know, willing to do the tough decisions, which, of course, this entire article doesn't actually go through any of the in-detail things that Yao Millis did in terms of what actually happened, in terms of a lot of people saying, what are you doing? This is going to take Boston back a decade. But instead, just highlighting just her temperature and her cool intellect. Keep reading. On a city council known for big personalities and ugly conflict, Lujan has not always offered the loudest opinion or splashiest newspaper quote. But from her quieter perch near the council's ideological center, she has more than once led the body through a particularly thorny legislative process. And I think that line is so telling. They are praising her quietness. They are praising that she is in the center. They are contrasting her with loud opinions, basically saying, look, she's one of the good ones. She keeps quiet. Which, I mean, my God, that framing and the contraction between the two is so disgusting the more you think about it, that this is what the globe is praising, that this is what the globe, and by that, really, like, the main media outlets are really emphasizing to their readership. And I have to imagine, if you subscribe to the Boston Globe, you probably vote. I can't imagine spending, I think it's like 25, 28 bucks a month I spend on it, and people also doing that not voting. And so they are just directly speaking to what is a predominantly, I have to imagine that their audience is more than 44% white, and they are really just saying, she's one of the good ones. It is very similar to that Joe Battenfield piece, but you know, the Globe just kind of does it in a different way. And so with all that, with the media highlighting her, bashing the other candidates, particularly the candidates of color, I think it was I counted 26 negative pieces against Kendra from that July until the prelim vote. And, you know, I'm sure Rootsy would have done just as well regardless. I mean, maybe not. It, it is possible that there's a world that if Rootsy didn't get such praising coverage um, because of what she did during redistricting, again, from the larger, wider publications, that maybe she even slipped, and maybe Erin Murphy would have taken that top spot. And that really should alarm people that Erin Murphy came as close as she did to getting that number one slot. And I really can't wait to look at the numbers, and I'm absolutely sure it is because of the concept that I've been talking about for the last few months, about racial balancing and ideological balancing of, ooh, all right, we want some of these people, and then some of them on this other side, and maybe together they'll do it. And, you know, that idea is absolutely championed by the media, who is at best politically illiterate. 
So it's possible she would have done just as well. But with the entire media behind her, with her really making that alliance with the with the white counselors, everyone from the left of center, Liz Brearden, Gigi, all the way to the right, Frank Baker and Michael Flaherty, with Ricardo and Kendra being knocked out, Julia not really having any foundational base to work with, Brian Worrell not really doing anything to differentiate himself too much from Ruthsi over the last term, also not really having the same political acumen that she does. Just the entire runway was cleared, and Ruthsi was able to lock this up in under 45 hours. And just before I leave you, have to highlight one last article about this published on November 9th, about four hours after it was made public by Rootsy that she'd be the president. This being in The Herald by Gayla Cauley. Title, Boston City Council President Claim Prompts Backlash. Two days after topping the ticket in the election, Rootsy Lujan announced that she has the votes to become the Boston City Council's next president, but didn't tell at least five of her other colleagues first, leaving at least two questioning her professionalism. Skipping some parts. The announcement hit the media before Lujan told at least five of her colleagues that she had secured the seven votes needed to become the body's next president. After the story was shared on X, formerly known as Twitter, Lujan then began calling those colleagues, said two city councilors who agreed to speak on background. Now, I don't know who those five are. And again, it's five at a minimum. Now, it's very possible that it's the four that are now leaving. So Flaherty, Baker, Arroyo, and Kendra. But judging by the responses, I kind of think it's going to be at least a few people who will still be on the council. And I'm going to read you those negatives. But before I say it, in case I didn't already, her vice president will be Brian Worrell, who, besides some speculation, and, you know, just looking at the overall coalitions, that being Julia Mejia, Brian Worrell was the only one openly running for it that I was made aware of, and just instantly being placated with the vice president's slot. And, you know, he has some great quotes that I think was added in her press release. He added the quote, I'm proud to support our new council president, Ruzi Lujan, as not only an amazing colleague, but an incredible friend. So Worrell is on the team. But... Let's contrast that with how some of these councils felt who were completely left out of the loop. Quote, I'm disappointed to learn about it in the media, one councilor said. A lot of us learned about it on the media once she got her seven vote. She went public with it. She didn't bother engaging the other colleagues. The councilor said the decision to exclude certain colleagues was a lousy way to do business and start off her presidency. Skipping ahead, it's unprofessional Rootsy to do that, but I guess that's what we're going to expect from her. Just the ongoing arrogance of her conduct, one councilor said, with another added that it demonstrated poor leadership and kept the council divided. And there's, again, some scenarios of who that could be. And it could almost, you know, destroy my entire thesis, not necessarily, but if Aaron Murphy and Ed Flynn are the two councilors who are on the record saying that, then I think you could justify in looking back and saying that I am blowing out of proportion the role that redistricting played in locking up Rootsy as our next council president. Though again, from how the media portrayed it, both the Herald and the Globe, I think the overall point I'm trying to make still stands, that she is the favorite 
of the media class of kind of the whiter, richer class of Boston because she demonstrated she was able to get on page. She was able to follow the playbook. She was willing to put herself out there to get this done. But, you know, if it was Aaron and Ed making those comments, then I'll say, okay, maybe I didn't interpret it 100% correctly. But you know what my best guess is? is I think that that is much more likely to be from the Julia and Tanya camps than anything else. But it's also possible it's some combination of the two. You know, it could have been Kendra Lara and Frank Baker being the two and just taking some last-minute shots. And really, the best way we're going to tell is, let's see who's chairing what committees, and let's see who's left out. That's really going to be the measurement of what exactly went down. But the fact that she didn't at least have those phone calls beforehand does show some arrogance. And while, to me, arrogance is not a negative, if you are arrogant and it is going to be in championing the things that are going to make people's lives better, go for it. And so, really, let's see what she does. Let's end it with that. Let's call it arrogance just like one of those counselors stated it, that she didn't even bother. She locked up the votes. I don't even need to tell you that this happened. I got the votes. Nothing you can do. And let's hope she takes that energy to do something good. Let's hope she takes that energy to not just allow Michelle Wu to get done whatever she wants to get done. Again, the council president has a lot of powers, can delay things, can del most importantly, can delay things. When do they appear on the gender? Under what committee? Working with the people she appointed in those committees to do what she wants them to do. There is a lot of power in this role. And let's just hope it is not to further her own political ambition. Wouldn't that be nice for once? And that's everything I wanted to say on this matter. As I stated before, now the best way to support this show, to support independent media, to encourage me to keep doing and do even more than I currently am, is to subscribe to the Patreon. There's a $4 level a month, $8 level if you want to buy me a beer. I think it's $20 for decent lunch. $100, you got the funds and you really want to make a statement. And if you can't, I understand. Like, share, subscribe, five stars. And with that, everyone, take care. And as always, have a great rest of your day.